And turn with me, please, or listen on once again from Romans chapter 11. So bearing in mind the exhortation that's coming, Paul is speaking to Gentiles. He's urging, well, he's contemplating the fate of the Jew, and he's urging the Gentile to humility. And that urging, as I say, comes later. But the basis of that is what is said in verses 11 through 15. Uh, I, I would just say as an aside, so often that, that the arguments about this chapter hinge on verse 26. So all Israel will be saved. But, uh, but I would say, based on my very detailed study at this point, that really everything hinges upon verses 11 through 15. So our view of what Paul is predicting here with respect to Israel in verse 26, all Israel will be saved hinges on what he says in verses 15 through uh, 11 through 15. Let us read them together uh, with such a thought in mind and with great care. Hear God's word. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, If their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And let us pray together. Oh, Father, if these verses really are as important as I just said, I I ask you on my behalf and on behalf of these people that you might uh, greatly illumine by your Holy Spirit these verses through the preaching and give us a a greater grasp of them. It it is clear, at least, if nothing else, that prior generations attached great importance to these verses. Oh, Lord, let us take them to heart as your very words to us. You are speaking to us even as you did to them. Let us have ears to hear, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we look at the argument thus far in chapter 11, but also in chapters 9 and 10, taking chapters 9 through 11 as a a whole, uh, the question with respect uh, to Israel's hardening is, was it total? And the answer is no, it was not total. God has not cast off. The whole nation, for there is a remnant. But beginning uh, in verse 11 through verse 32, the thesis becomes, as John Murray says, that the apostasy of Israel is not final. So please notice the difference as we seek to understand the argument with respect to the apostasy of Israel. Chapters 9 through 10, uh, 9 through 11, rather, or just the beginning of chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, the apostasy of Israel is not total. There is a remnant. But with respect to the future of the rest who were hardened and are standing at the outside, the thesis becomes the fundamental thesis of verses 11 through 32 is that the hardening or the apostasy of Israel is not final. And so we are in the realm of prophecy. Which is always a little uncomfortable, isn't it? I I think I said that last time. We read this or we read the Olivet Discourse in the the New Testament or the prophecies of the Old Testament and we're always a little bit unsettled. We're, We're never quite sure what's being said. Let us confess that at the outset. These are some of the more difficult verses to understand. 
Prophecy is always deeply mysterious, as Paul acknowledges. Here is a mystery revealed of which some are ignorant, verse 25. And what is the mystery that is revealed? Well, he tells us it is that blindness has come upon Israel. The blindness that we we read about in verses 7 through 10, that is the prior sermon. Blindness has come upon Israel in part. But there is a terminus, that is, there is an end to the judicial blinding or hardening of Israel. It is, he tells us, the end of this judicial blinding is until, or, or it continues until, the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. In other words, if the Jews are out, the Gentiles are coming in, the Jews at present are blinded, but don't misunderstand, Paul is saying in this new section, that is not the total picture. Once the Gentiles have finished coming in, the eyes of the Jews that are presently blinded will be opened and they will come in as well. That is the nature of the prophecy which is given in verses 11 through 32. So then as this new section begins in verses 11 through 32, in verse 11, the question is this that he asks. I say then, have they, that is Israel, stumbled that they should fall? And we should be clear as to the exact force of the question. What is he asking? Well, he's not saying, has Israel fallen down? Have they stumbled and fell? No, there's no question as to her having stumbled. Paul has said so as clearly as he possibly can that they have stumbled at the end of chapter nine uh, or in chapter 11, verse nine. He says, let their table become a snare and a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Certainly, They have stumbled, which he does not deny. Or to put it even more strikingly, Israel as a nation has stumbled in such a way that it has resulted in her complete fall. So Paul isn't saying, has she stumbled in such a way that she fell down? That is not his question. No, there she is lying on the ground. He has no interest in denying it. She's fallen over, having stumbled on the rock of offense. And that is a fact that cannot be denied. But the phrasing of the question indicates Paul's true interest, not whether she has fallen down, but to what end did she stumble so as to fall that she should fall? That's the actual line. In other words, did God cause her to stumble only in order that she should fall? And that's the end of the story. Or was there some higher purpose? Was God accomplishing something beyond her fall in her stumble? That's the question. And that's uh, the question that he answers in verses 11 through 15, but especially in verses 11 and 12. To quote John Murray again, he says, it is on God's higher purpose. The apostle is reflecting. We are here advised, therefore, of the overriding and overruling design of God in the stumbling and fall of Israel. In other words, if our overriding assumption is that God has not cast off his people of old, verse 1 of chapter 11, has he cast off his people? Certainly not. And yet we are bound to acknowledge, along with the Apostle Paul, that for the present, that she has been cast away, verse 15. So take those two ideas together. God has not cast off his people, except uh, in a way he has for the present. How are we to understand this conflict in the purpose of God, this apparent 
let me add that word, apparent conflict in the purpose of God. And the answer, as ever, is to see God's higher purpose and to assume a broader perspective. In other words, to assume the perspective of history, not merely of the present. For the present position does not tell the full story, nor is it the full answer to the question, has God cast off his people? And that then is answered in verses 11 and 12, which is my first point. God's purpose in Israel's fall. If God did not cause Israel to stumble so that she should fall, why did he cause her to stumble? And first, let me say that the New King James, which I'm preaching out of, uh, somewhat misses the real thrust of the passage. The ESV and the King James are better. The ESV says, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if I read the New King James, he says, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. You see, it's a question of emphasis. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. That seems to be the real purpose in the New King James. But if you look at the Greek and you look at the other translations, they better capture what he's being said, what is being said there. He says, even as God is saving the Gentiles, he is provoking jealous Israel to jealousy. So that the real burden of verse 11 is not salvation coming to the Gentiles, but it is Israel being provoked to jealousy as a result. And after all, it is really Israel that is in question here. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not for God in bringing salvation to the Gentiles is making them jealous. And he goes even beyond that uh, in what he says in verses 12 and 15. At any rate, Let us begin with that thought, and that is Israel's fall. There's three answers to the question. What what did God accomplish in Israel's fall? Not simply to knock her down so that she might lie there and he being finished with her. I, I think that's what many people think, and Paul is trying to correct that error. The first thing that God accomplishes is that Israel's fall led to the salvation of the Gentiles. It led to salvation coming to the Gentiles. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. How or whereby by Israel's fall? And that is unquestionably a fact of history, the history which we've been considering in Acts. And it's true even up to the present. Uh, You remember what Paul says in evangelizing the Jews in Acts chapter 13, verse 46, that uh, that he says, well, now we turn to the Gentiles. Why did he turn to the Gentiles? He turned to the Gentiles because of the unbelief of the Jews. Now, please understand that the natural and the initial concern of the apostles was to evangelize the Jews. If anything, they were in no hurry to get to the Gentiles. Their greater concern was, as with their Lord, uh, evangelizing the lost sons of the house of Israel. But what we discover in Acts is that that project fell apart very quickly. And as a result of that, it sped on the apostles in their zeal to evangelize the Gentiles. You see, it was something they would get to only once they evangelized the Jews. But the Jews were so reluctant that that it forced the apostles into a position where their main concern and their main audience was Gentiles. And so it's just a sheer fact of history that because the history we read in Acts That because the Jews rejected the gospel, the gospel sped on in its way to the Gentiles. We are the beneficiaries, just as Gentiles were in the first century, of of this fact. To use the language of verse 12, and again, this is just 
a fact of history. Israel's fall, her rejection of the gospel, meant riches to the world, that is, the Gentiles and the nations of the world. Well, I'm presenting that, uh, that to you as a fact, but let me also do so in terms of a purpose. Because the real burden of the passage is what God was accomplishing in Israel's stumble. It was that salvation should come to the Gentiles. You see, that's what God wanted and that's what God brought about. It, it's, not just, uh, it's not just chance or fate that led to this. Well, the Jews happened to not believe and so salvation came to the Gentiles a little faster than it might have otherwise. Now, what we ought to see is that it was God himself who brought this about. It was God who orchestrated this. It was the hand of providence that was guiding things along. Israel's downfall leading to the evangelization, evangelization, I mean, of the Gentiles was the plan of God. There are so many passages in the Bible that make this clear, but most striking among them is what our Lord says in Matthew 21 verses 42 and 43. He says, have you never read the scriptures? He's speaking to Jews. The stones, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits thereof. There is our Lord's word of prophecy. It is the plan of God revealed in advance. And that's exactly what we find happens in Acts. You see, though, not just the fact of history, it is a matter of prophecy. Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping uh, and, and gnashing of teeth. That's a little less clear than what's said in Matthew 21, but you get... The same idea. The Gentiles coming in and uh, the Jews being cast out. This is something that before it happened, God said he was going to do in no uncertain terms. And what Paul is saying, and no one can deny, is that now it's happened. It's no longer a matter of prophecy. God has done it. He's cast out the Jews. He's brought in the Gentiles. And you see the bigger question that remains is, well, what's he going to do with the Jews now that he has cast them out? The second point, or second answer to the question, what did God accomplish in Israel's downfall? Is he provoked them to jealousy thereby? He called the Gentiles, and as a result of this, he made them jealous. You see, as I said, that's the real burden of verse 11. In calling the Gentiles, he was provoking Israel to jealousy. And that tells us that God isn't finished with the Jews. He still has a plan for the Jews. He still is, as it were, as we read in chapter 10, verse 21, pleading with her. All day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Well, did we think he was finished pleading with them? We might have in judging them, but he hasn't. He's still pleading with them. He is seeking to make her jealous. That's his current project. That's his current plan. And so he isn't finished with Israel. And if we understand God's, uh, or rather Israel's disposition to God, we'll understand why that was. The whole trouble with Israel, as the Gospels and as the book of Acts reveal in their response to the Gospel, is that she was so secure. She assumed that all was right, all was well. 
She listened to the prophets who said peace, peace when there was no peace. In other words, as we'll see Paul warning Gentiles, what was true of the Jews was the sin of pride, the awful sin of pride. God was pleading with Israel all the day long. Why will you not be saved? How I, how I would gather you under my wings and yet you will not come. Why was it she was too proud? All day long God was pleading with her. Even to this day he is. But she is too proud to be saved. And so what did God do with Israel? What was his procedure? Well he humbled her utterly. He knocked her over. In order to completely humiliate her. Not only in her own eyes. But in the eyes of the nations. He dwelt among her. But he dwells among her. No more. He withdrew his favor. He withdrew his presence. He went out to a people who did not know him and he made and called them now his people. He saved another nation even as he forsook Israel. Chapter 9 verse 25. There were many instances of this in chapters 9 and 10. Uh, He says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. Or chapter 10 verse 19 I will. Uh, I, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. You see, God's knocked her down. He's humbled her, but he isn't finished with her. He's still dealing with her. In humbling Israel, he was seeking to make her jealous. And the, the question is jealous of what? Of having lost her status as the people of God. Of enjoying his presence. And his favor. And his love. Jealous now. This is the scandal in the Jewish year. But it's the teaching of the New Testament. Jealous to have now what the Gentiles have. What she had and lost. Namely. Again. The favor. The presence of God. Oh if there's ever anything to be jealous of, you might say, wait a second, can I be jealous? Doesn't the Tenth Commandment tell me not to be? Well, I would say, and I'm not alone in saying this. This is a common point to be preached, so let me preach it. If there's ever something to be jealous of, it's this, salvation. If ever you see that someone else is enjoying the love and the favor of God and you don't have it, well, you ought to be jealous of that. That's the one time in your life you ought to be jealous If you see God speaking tenderly to others and yet not to us, let us be jealous. Let us seek to know what they know and to have what they have. And that's what Paul is saying. And that's what God is saying to the Jew. He's saying, I want you to be jealous. I've cast you off. I want you to see what they have. That is the nations of what you've lost. And to long again to enjoy a position and a status of favor and of love. To hear me say of you, you are my people. Do you see by this God is promoting Israel's salvation in the long run? He's promoting it. He's knocked her down. He's humbled her. Why? In order to make her jealous. Not in order to throw her away and be done with her. But in the long run to save her. He's dealing with a stubborn and a rebellious people who refuse to be saved. And what what is the procedure? God's procedure with a stubborn and rebellious people. To knock them to the ground. But again, I say, he did not, well, to use the language of Paul here, they did not stumble that they should fall in the sense that their downfall was all that God was securing. No, he did not make them fall so as to leave them there, but 
as God saved the Gentiles, it was in order that they might, they being the Jews, see their folly and seek from God that which they lost to provoke them to jealousy. But then there's a third answer, which we find in verse 12. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. So at present, God is provoking them to jealousy even as he casts them off. But that isn't the full story. If their downfall, Paul says, was riches to the world, and certainly it was, because as Israel fell, so salvation has come to the Gentiles, even to you and me. Please understand, Paul is saying, that's not the end. That's not the full picture. That's not the full scope of what God is doing. For if her, that is Israel's fall, was riches to the Gentile church, imagine, he says, what her fullness will be. If she was cast off, imagine what will be true when she is brought back. Now, some question what uh, the term fullness refers to. There's no question what her fall refers to or her trespass in verse 12 or her failure. That is her apostasy. I think everyone is clear about that. But what does he mean when he says how much more their fullness? If her fall was riches to the world, how much more will her fullness be riches to the world? What is meant by fullness? What is it referred to? But again, in agreement with John Murray and so many others, the answer to the question is this. Fullness must correspond to failure as its antithesis. It should mean the opposite of what failure meant. Now, her failure unquestionably was her apostasy as a nation. And the result of Israel's apostasy as a nation was riches to the world. It was salvation coming to the Gentiles. And Paul is saying if her failure meant that for Gentile Christians, what do you think her fullness will mean? Still, we haven't answered the question. What does he mean by fullness? Fullness must mean, to quote Ian Murray in the Puritan Hope, which I, I, I have uh, by my side. It must mean a large numerical increase of converted Jews. Fullness is a numerical term. It refers to numbers. It conveys the idea of a great number. And the thought is. As the fall involved a great number of Jews, the bulk of the nation, so that only a remnant was saved, what will happen when that small number of converted Jews is greatly increased? No longer a remnant, but now the fullness. What will happen when a full measure, a large number of Jews are suddenly converted and brought into the church? Yes, Paul says, if her fall was riches to the world, what do you think her fullness will mean? That's the spirit of what he's saying in verse 12. Now, as he returns to that thought in verse 15, I want to leave it there for a moment and consider now as a second point what he is saying in verses 13 and 14. Very briefly, uh, since verses 12 and 15 are really the burden. This is what the apostle says. I speak to you as gen, uh, to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. And then in verse 15, he more or less repeats the argument of verse 12. What's he saying in verses 13 and 14? A kind of parenthesis. Well, he's very clear that and I said this already. He's speaking about Jews to Gentiles. Don't hear Paul here saying, well, now, Gentiles, you can just uh, sit to the side for a moment. I'm speaking to the Jews. No, he is speaking to the Gentiles about the Jews. 
the Gentiles uh, who had thought the Jews were the furthest thing from their concern. And I wonder if that is the state uh, and true of the church today. I think it largely is. He's saying, listen, Gentiles, I have something to say to you about the Jews. In fact, uh, your fate is bound to theirs. I'll return to that thought in a little while. He's saying, as a minister to Gentiles, he hasn't forgotten about the Jews, and so neither should they. No, it is his privilege that in, in advancing the cause of the Gentiles or the salvation of the Gentiles, he is able along the way to save some Jews as well. How? Well, he tells us again, as he said in verse 11, so verse 14, by provoking them to jealousy. And as a result of this, he is able, he hopes to save some. He realizes the fullness comes later. He has no illusions about the fullness coming in in his own day. But for now, the fate of the Jew and the Gentile are bound in some measure. Even if only some Jews are made to see their error, this is reason to rejoice, Paul is saying. As I evangelize the Gentiles and provoke the Jews to jealousy, if only some are saved, I rejoice. Now, to be clear, Paul isn't saying, there have been some who have said this, that I love my ministry to Gentiles because in the end, it's a ministry to Jews. In other words, uh, this indirect ministry to Jews is really where my heart is. And so I suppose I'll, I'll, I'll uh, evangelize the Gentiles because thereby I'm able to evangelize the Jews. Paul isn't saying that. He isn't denigrating in any way his ministry to the Gentiles. But he would have the Gentiles to see what he sees, and that is the connection. That in evangelizing the Gentiles, even some Jews might be saved. This is yet another strong indication that in going to the Gentiles, God has not forgotten about Israel. Not even today, still less in the future. Paul was keenly conscious of this. He was keenly aware that even as an apostle to the Gentiles, he was furthering Israel's salvation, even if for the present only some were saved. But finally, as a third point, we come to verse 15 which is basically a repetition of verse 12. Let me read them together. Now, he says, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness, skip to verse 15, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? The thought is essentially the same in both places. Israel is cast off, and as a result, the world is reconciled, that is, the Gentiles, the nations. But if that is so, if her downfall was riches to the world, verse 12, if that is so, verse 15, if her, her, her casting off was acceptance uh, uh, for the world, reconciling of the world, what will her acceptance mean? It's the same idea stated differently. What will it mean but life from the dead? There's several questions that we can ask of verse 15. The first is, who is being referred to? That is, who is cast away and who is accepted? And here, uh, the Puritan hope really becomes relevant here. I've started speaking, by the way, of the Puritan hope. I'm expressing the Puritan hope, and I've had, I've had some of my fellow ministers say, what, what on earth are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about the hope that's expressed in Ian Murray's The Puritan Hope. So I'm expressing to you the Puritan hope, and by the way, I'll be quoting a lot of, of the book here. Elnathan Parr, one of the Puritans, said this. Of whom? Of the nation. Of them that were cast away. 
That is, he's saying, and I'm saying, those who are cast off are the same group that will be accepted. Israel has been cast away. She's apostate. That's not just the result of her sin, but that's the plan of God. But the plan of God, if you go a little further in history, also includes her acceptance. She is rejected for now. She's cast away. She will be accepted. Ian Murray in the same book says the people who were, reje- were rejected will be readmitted. Again, that's Israel, the nation. That's the rest who were hardened. You remember verses seven, uh, verse seven, that the elect are saved. The rest are hardened. Yes, but what about the rest? Well, cast away for now. Accepted in days to come. Cast away, but brought back. The nation was cast out. The nation shall be readmitted. That's the thought. Israel as a whole, no longer the remnant. Second question, what is envisioned by their acceptance? Verse 15, or by her fullness? Verse 12. Well, quite clearly, it doesn't mean all without exception. It doesn't mean that in verse 12. It doesn't mean it in verse 15. It doesn't mean in verse 26 when it says all Israel will be saved. Any more than when God called the Uh, The nations, the Gentiles, in the days of the apostles and is doing to this day any more than it means every Gentile, every single individual Gentile will be saved. It doesn't mean that. It means a very great number. It means that a great number of Jews, even the bulk of the nation, will once again enjoy a place of favor with God. It means that the Jews as a people or as a nation will be included in the the number of those whom he calls his people. Now, listen, I want to say this as clearly as I can. As the Jews as a people are again to be admitted and included in the people of God, they shall be so not as Jews, but as Christians. That's the emphasis here. He will call them as Christians. I see a day Paul is saying. When the Jews will no longer identify as Jews, but as Christians. I see, a Jew, I see a day when Jews will no longer call themselves a Jewish people, but a Christian people. As the Gentiles who were once far off were brought near by the blood of Christ. So the Jews who are at present cast away will be brought near as well in the same way. Ian Murray says the sense of verses 12 and 15 points to a vast addition to the church by Israel's conversion and to the Puritan mind and to my own, the category that explains this hope, what Paul is looking forward to, Israel's conversion, her mass entrance into the church, the category that explains that best is the category of revival. He is looking forward to a future revival in which the natural branches broken off will be grafted back in, that is, the Jews. The Apostle Paul is predicting a revival here, similar to what we read of in Acts. Because you see, when the Jews were rejected, it brought about revival. To what? To the world. Indeed, the greatest revival the world has ever known, we read of in the book of Acts. How many were saved in the days of the apostles? What brought it about? Well, many things, but one of the things was Israel's downfall. And what Paul is saying is, Wait till you see what will happen when Israel's brought back in. I'm looking forward uh, to a day of revival uh, that parallels and perhaps, I'm not sure about this, but perhaps surpasses what the church saw in the days of the Acts of the Apostles. 
If her downfall meant riches to the world, how much more will her acceptance? And that leads to the final question. When he says, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? What does that mean? That's the final phrase in verse 15. I'm saying that's referring to revival. And by the way, that's what revival means. It means life from the dead. The question is, who is the subject of this life from the dead? Who is being raised? Who is experiencing this revival from death? There are many, and I confess for the long time, I thought he meant the Jews. And even you find this in the Puritan hope, some of the Puritans saying, this dead, lifeless corpse of Israel, dead in her trespasses and unbelief, will be resurrected into a state of faith and justification and new life in Christ. That is very compelling. But I also think it is wrong. It ignores the symmetry of the passage. Who are the beneficiaries of Israel's downfall? The world, the church. Who will be the beneficiaries of Israel's acceptance? Once again, it's the same people. If Israel's casting off meant riches to the world, so her acceptance will mean life from the dead. For whom? For the world. That's not to say the church will be dead. It's, it's, it's hyperbole which you do find in the Bible, by the way. It's a way of very dramatically expressing something tremendous, something very great. It will be, for whatever the church is known, it will be like life from the dead. It will be uh, unknown and untold blessing brought to the church. As great as the blessing the church enjoyed as a result of Israel's rejection, the blessing will be far greater when she's accepted. And how could they not? How could they who were save they, those Gentiles, not be blessed by Israel's acceptance. For the church will undoubtedly be greatly blessed to see her who was cast off and rejected, brought back. It will be, if nothing else, a source of immeasurable joy among the Gentile Christians to see the sons of Abraham calling upon the name of Jesus as Lord. Let me close then by making two points of application, two practical takeaways or implications of the teaching. The first is this, to eliminate any confusion about what it is I am teaching and what it is I believe the Apostle Paul is teaching. Let us see Israel, however you define that. Israel as a distinct nation, a distinct people, a distinct Race as no longer synonymous with the people of God. Let us see that that is the case. Paul is clear that the present state is that she has been cast off. Not that she has been favored, but that she has been cast off. The kingdom of God has been taken from her and given to others. And so it is wrong, beloved, and I hope to make this clear in sermons to come. It is wrong to speak of The Jews is the people of God. But don't go too far with this. This ought to burden you. This ought to sadden you to see her downfall. This ought to make you long for their salvation. How is it that they of all people should stand on the outside? I think if you read your Old Testament, that that burden will grow in your heart. Paul has something here hopeful to say to such a person who's saddened, who's burdened about the downfall of Israel. And his message is this. God is not finished with this people. He's saying that the Jew is a distinct people. 
has a future place in the plan of God, even as the Gentiles once did and still do. As the Old Testament looked forward to the the salvation and the ingathering of the Gentiles, and this has now happened, so the New Testament looks forward to the Jews in the same way. It expresses God's desire for their salvation. And he will save them. That's what Paul says. Some for now, many in days to come. To put the matter as plainly as I can, our interest in Israel or the Jews must mirror that of Paul's. Not as a geopolitical state. And I can't emphasize that strongly enough in the present state of affairs. That is not our burden or our interest with respect to Israel, but that they as a people might be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. This is what Paul says. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they may be saved. And so our interest with respect to Israel is not in politics as such, but in salvation. It is not in their present form among the nations of the world. It is how lost she as a people is without Christ. And oh, Paul is expressing That she who was cast off might be brought back in. Brought back in where? Again, I differ with my dispensational brothers. Not into the land, but into the church. Oh, that she as a people might be brought back in to what he calls the people of God. Again, we'll see that in sermons to come. That is the hope which is expressed here. And that is the burden of Paul's prophecy. I wonder. Here's here's the application. For Gentile Christians of the 21st century, do you long for Israel's salvation? Are we willing to do what is necessary if by any means he might save some? Or speaking more broadly, does the Orthodox Presbyterian Church long to see Jews brought into the church? Let me come to a second point and final point of application. It is important that we see the relevance of this teaching to ourselves as Gentiles, because as, as we continue to, to see the cases built by Paul, the temptation is to say God has now turned to the Gentiles and he's finished with the Jews. That's, that's the temptation. That's the danger. But the reality is that the Gentiles should be concerned with the fate of the Jew. And why? Because our fate is tied together. That as Paul says, as we are saved, so we promote their salvation. And as they one day will be saved as a group, so we will be further enriched by their place in the kingdom of God. And this is why Paul magnified his ministry. My question to you is, do you magnify your office as a Gentile Christian for the same reason? Do you see the glory of this, that your enjoyment of salvation should provoke the Jew to jealousy and perhaps save some? And that if their rejection meant our enrichment, how much more will their acceptance mean our riches in the knowledge of Christ? Even as John Brown said, how much more shall their inbringing and fullness or the conversion of the body and bulk of that nation tend to the enriching of the Gentile world in the knowledge of Christ? Or as Richard Sibb says in the bruised reed, and I've quoted many times, as the faithful Jew looked forward to the calling Of the Gentiles should not we long as Gentiles for the calling of the Jew. And let us not fear, as was the case of Israel, 
that their acceptance will mean our diminishing? No, it will only tend to further and advance our present enjoyment of Christ and of his grace. For as the Puritan Elnathan Parr says, the casting off of the Jews was our calling, but the calling of the Jews shall not be our casting off, but our greater enrichment in grace. And as we contemplate this mystery and the vast scope of God's plan, do we not say, as Paul does at the end of Romans chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid for of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let us come to the table.